Last week, we traveled to Pergamos and the Church of the Elevated Marriage, which is a marriage which Jesus objected. He always objects to compromise. Jesus wants our whole heart. Jesus also taught that a little leaven goes a long, long way. In His fourth kingdom parable, Matthew 13, Jesus said, verse 33, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Father, we come to the fourth letter to the church. And I pray that we as a church would receive it. And while we recognize things prophetically here, while we will see things, Lord, that are clearly um, descriptive of a segment or a branch, Lord, of your church, we recognize and we desire to recognize that some of these very issues may be creeping around here. And we ask that you would cleanse our hearts and our minds and and this fellowship, Lord, of anything, anything less than pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And I pray in the teaching tonight, Lord, for <laughs> wakeful minds, sharp thinking, clear thinking, that we might receive in full the revelation that you have for us this evening. Holy Spirit, we come to hear. We come with an ear to hear what you're saying to this church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. A little leaven goes a long way. The fourth kingdom parable parallels, I think, perfectly the fourth church, or at least the fourth letter to the church, Thyatira. The church of Thyatira, historical Thyatira, but remember, it's also to be read as we prayed corporately which means we look at ourselves. We think it through ourselves. Especially knowing what we're about to talk about here, I was very moved during worship to recognize the deep love of Jesus. For all of us. For all of our variations of the church. And His deep, I would say, heartbreak when the church goes off the deep end. Chases idols. Forgets our first love. Compromises on things. Or suffers. We've looked at many of these things already. But this letter is historical and it's corporate for the church then and now. It is also personal. There may be something in this that you recognize in your own faith, in your own walk. Let the Spirit speak to you. But prophetically, the church of Thyatira points to that period of time in the church age when the leaven indeed had worked all through the dough. Leaven in the Bible is a picture of what, Bible students? Sin. From the Passover to the present application, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity 
and truth. Recognize that. Underscore it. Get this down. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. It's done. It was finished. Tetelestai, he shouted on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is finished. So the feast that we celebrate now, we celebrate not with old leaven, but we are a new unleavened lump. So if you're feeling a little lumpy tonight, it's perfect. Thyatira directs our attention, this letter, and you will see this, this is one of the most vivid, I think, of the seven letters in terms of the age or the epoch of the church age to which it points. It speaks of that season of time where the church that dominated the landscape from 606 to 1520 A.D. is comparable to Thyatira. Now that beginning around 606, running through 1520, but continuing all the way up to the very second coming of Jesus Christ, there are those of Thyatira who will be on the earth. And if you're tracking me real closely, you know exactly what I'm saying, but I'll be more clear as we go. Thyatira is the first of the seven churches to whom Jesus writes in eschatological terms. First one now where he is going to talk about, mention the tribulation with respect to Thyatira as a warning because this church is still around, still in play. Thyatira, unchanged, is headed into the tribulation. Sardis, the next letter, is also warned seriously of completely missing out on the rapture of the church and therefore heading into tribulation. Philadelphia, oh, Philadelphia, is promised to be raptured. I will keep you from that time of testing, which is about to come upon the whole earth. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to Philadelphia. And then finally, Laodicea is also warned of the coming tribulation. But, interestingly, lukewarm Laodicea, if they could just fire up their bellies a bit are offered the millennial kingdom. So in all four of these letters, we now are kind of peering over into the that which is about to be, the things which will take place after these things. Right now, we are in the things which are. But we are fast approaching the things which will take place after these things, both in our study and I believe at this point in the world's history. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. So from Pergamos, we're going to head now southeast, about 50 miles inland. And I need to make a quick correction. I got my maps messed up. Cheryl will tell you that never happens, but I got a little confused. If you look on the map of the seven churches in Asia, if you're starting in Ephesus down in the southwest of western Turkey today, on the coast, on the coast of the Aegean Sea, and then you would head north from there up to Smyrna, and then from Smyrna even further north, not inland as I, as I mentioned before, but further north, on up the coast, you land at Pergamos. So all three of the first three letters are seacoast towns. But then from Pergamos, you're going to go inland almost in a straight line, then to Thyatira, and then on to Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And then you can hook back around to Ephesus on this Roman postal route. Thyatira is interesting among these letters. It's the longest letter, but it's the smallest city. 
In fact, it's the least significant. It, it really is not a player so much, but for one thing. Thyatira was just a, it was a blue-collar town. It was a, a town known for one thing, and that was its trade guilds. We would say unions today. If you lived in Thyatira, you were a card-carrying union member. And that's what made up Thyatira, and they were mostly a working town, primarily trading in textiles and fabric, but they had one very, very special commodity. Dye. A purple dye, or you might call it cardinal red. It was a dye that they would use, that they developed, that they created or or extracted there in Thyatira. Highly desirable. Very, very expensive. The royals loved it because it was that that color, that purplish royal color, and it was extracted one drop at a time from shellfish. So you can see why it might be a little expensive. Thyatira was the only place in the empire that you could get this particular dye to dye fabrics and, and, and clothing that you might wear. Thyatira, the only time we hear about Thyatira outside of the Revelation, we hear about it one time, and that's when Paul sailed across the Aegean Sea to a city not in Asia, but in Europe. It's when Paul sailed to Philippi. And if you've got your Bible, turn over to Acts 16. If you don't have your Bible, get up and go get one off the shelf. What are you doing here without a Bible? (laughs) Acts chapter 16. Paul has sailed across. He's now come into what would be today Europe, Macedonia, sailing to Philippi, and he arrives there. And I'm going to pick up reading in about verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. Ready? Here we go. Acts 16, verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that's a rarity right there. God saying, do not share the gospel. Tell no one. You're not allowed to teach here. Keep moving. Just keep on moving. Well, after they came to Mysia, verse 7, and they were trying to go into Bithynia, that's the northern part of Asia, to head on up to the north, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. No, no. You may not teach here, and you may not teach up there. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia. He was standing and appealing to him, excuse me, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we, this is Luke probably writing, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside. Where we were supposed, where, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled there. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now note this, pay attention to this. Every little detail of what we talk about tonight is going to matter when we get to the letter. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God was listening. 
And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And I love this phrase, and she prevailed upon us. Well, of course she did. She's a saleswoman. She convinced them to stay. That word prevail is parabiazomai, and it means to constrain. She constrained us, talked us into it. So Paul and and Luke et al., they stayed there with Lydia, this businesswoman. But remember, they're in Macedonian Philippi, but Lydia is from Thyatira in Asia where Paul was not allowed to preach. Now they're over in Philippi where apparently it's okay to preach the gospel, obviously because the Lord opened up Lydia's heart there. But note this, not only is there no other mention of Thyatira in the New Testament, but here, when they're in Philippi, and the letter to Thyatira, but we also have no indication of how a church got planted there in the first place. Oh, we can make guesses or assumptions. Some people say on a previous or a later missionary journey, perhaps then Paul went into Thyatira, planted a church there. Others think, wait, wait, perhaps, maybe. Maybe Lydia prevailed upon her hometown. Maybe she went back from Philippi to Thyatira and she brought the gospel back. And that is intriguing to me. It's intriguing for the obvious point that you can learn the gospel, you can hear about Jesus anywhere and take him wherever you go. And spread the gospel wherever you go. That's the marvelous thing about the church in the world is it doesn't matter what country or, or what nation or what continent even we're on. we got the gospel. And you can't shut us up. It just keeps on spreading. But there's another reason this intrigues me. And again, think about this. The Spirit forbade Paul et al. from taking the gospel to Asia. Jesus would not let them take it even north to Bithynia. Instead, Paul, as we just read in the story, Paul saw a Macedonian man. Macedonian man. Well, that doesn't really fit the story. He should have seen Lydia, Macedonian woman, or a Thyatiran woman in Macedonia. That would have been more accurate, right? Lord, why do you... Why do you give Paul a vision of a Macedonian man? And in my opinion, and it's just an opinion, I think the man he saw was probably the Philippian jailer who comes up later in the story of Acts chapter 16. But he gets this vision of a man. Lydia's a woman. A man from Macedonia. Lydia is from Thyatira. And Asia Minor. Where the Lord, again, had not yet permitted them to teach. Now, of course, the Lord knew that Lydia would go back with the gospel and probably bring it, if if indeed she did. The Lord would have known that. But i got to throw this out. I really wonder if God had had another plan for Thyatira. Another way for, if, if, and this is a big if at the beginning of our study. The whole study is not based on it, so it's okay. If this if is wrong, it's not all going to come crumbling down. But if, in fact, Lydia took the gospel back to Thyatira as some guess, I'm suggesting to you that God may have had a different plan. Now, He works with whatever we do because we're messy. (laughs) We're messy people. 
But I think maybe he would have had another plan, something he intended for Thyatira, a way he intended the gospel to get there. If Lydia brought it, someone other than Lydia, and why are you saying this, Rick? We'll get there, but Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. If there's anything I've learned in my life of following Jesus, that's it. His thoughts are way up here, and my thoughts are way down here. And I don't always understand why He does what He does, or why He says what He says, or why He establishes standards in the church like He establishes. I don't always get it. Now some of you, again, if you're thinking and you're really paying attention, you might ask the question, Rick, are you implying Lydia wasn't supposed to take the Gospel back home? And no, I'm just suggesting that if it was planted by Lydia, it may have been problematic later for Thyatira. Oh, why? Because she's a woman? Yes. There, I said it. (laughs) My point is this, that we can create problems in the church when we get things out of godly order. And I do believe that there's a godly order, that there are godly roles for men and women in the church. No, that's not going to be the focus of our entire study. But God knows what He's doing, and I don't. And and by the way, side note, I've tried different ways in ministry over the years. I've tried putting people in roles that they shouldn't be in and, and, and seeing the mess of it. I think God knows what He's doing. You know, it's interesting, in Philippi, there in Macedonia, there was no synagogue. Those of you who were here when we studied Acts might remember this. You had to have, to have a synagogue in any town, by, by Jewish standards, you had to have at least ten men. It was called a minion. So either ten men or a little yellow guy with big goggle eyes. <laughs> you had to have a minion of ten, a quorum, if you will, of ten men. They didn't have a synagogue there. There were not ten male believing Jews in Philippi at the time. Or they would have had a synagogue. Which is why then Paul and and Luke had to go down and meet a group of prayerful women in a van down by the or down by the river. You gotta go meet them down by the river, because that's where the Jewish people would meet by a river. If there was flowing water somewhere, they would go meet there, and so they knew if we go, there's no synagogue, let's go find the prayerful people, and they found a group of women. Praise God, women were gathered praying. That never happens around here. I told you back when we studied this, and when we've gone through several different passages of scripture, our ladies are the ones most likely to pray. Most likely to show up if we're gonna have an afternoon of prayer. The women are going to always outpace the men in showing up for that. Way to go, sisters. Bros, what is wrong with us? (laughs) Because honestly, if I'm denying opportunity to pray, you know what I'm denying? Power. Maybe we should just put it that that way. Instead of having a a morning of prayer, morning of power. We'll see how many guys show up for that. Oh, yeah. You know, bringing their weights and stuff. Ready to go. Where were the men? Where were the men? I I think we're going to see something here, in fact I'm sure of it, that will play out in Thyatira. We have seen time after time, and you can track it through the Scriptures, where both in Jewish and church history, from Deborah to Lydia, that when the men won't step up, the women will often step in. And I'm not saying they shouldn't, sisters. God will work with whoever's willing 
to work. God will move with whoever is willing to move. But I know this much, I know this much. While Thyatira as a church may have been founded by a faithful, influential woman, with certainty, Thyatira as a church floundered because of an infamously immoral woman. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and His feet are like burnished bronze. The component of Christ's character in this letter. We see it in chapter 1, most of it, eyes of a, that are shooting fire and feet of burnished bronze. But note this, this is the only time in the entire revelation that Jesus calls Himself the Son of God. It's the only time. When you see something like that in a book, that's significant. It is intended to stand out clearly. And he's not calling himself the Son of God simply out of an issue of masculinity. No, he's talking about heredity. The Son of God, my friends, he is not the Son of Mary. He is the Son of God. Mark chapter 3, verse 32 tells us a crowd was sitting around him, sitting around Jesus. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. No wonder his family thought he was nuts. Like, those aren't his mother and brothers. He doesn't even know who he's talking to. But Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to. My mother, my brothers, my family. He'd say the same thing looking out at us tonight. Behold, my mother and my brothers. Note this, the only time in the Bible that Jesus is ever referred to as the son of Mary is when his nature was misunderstood. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 3. They said, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. And that's the only time he's called the son of Mary. When they looked at him and they said, isn't that who this is? And they did not know who he was. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Amen? Amen. Now, being the son of God, that just doesn't mean he's an underling of the father. In Jewish understanding, if you're the son of God, then you have all the traits of the father. If you're the son, then you have all the inheritance. If you're the son, you have all the authority. If you're the son, you are in standing with the father and you will take over from the father at some point. Son of God. And here, Jesus, the son of God, he shows up at Thyatira with eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze. In other words, indignation and judgment. And compassion. Don't ever forget the eyes of fire are only fiery because of how deeply he loves his people. How deeply he loves historical Thyatira. How deeply he loves prophetical Thyatira. And how deeply he loves us when we're acting like Thyatira. The passion and the indignation all sources from the compassion of Jesus Christ. Now you may recall to Pergamus he brought that sharp two-edged sword. Why? To cut out the compromise. Well, guess what? Prophetically, the compromise led to the leaven throughout all of the loaf. And at Thyatira, here comes the judge with eyes on fire. 
We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, I'll just read this to you. No one can lay a foundation, this is verse 11, 1 Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. And if any man's work, note this, is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved Yet so as through fire. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible? I never thought this before. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That's someone whose entire life work amounts to wood, hay, and straw. Not precious stones, not gold, not silver, not things that last. And that's the indication that Paul is giving. The person whose life work burns up is worthless will be saved so as through fire. Might that be a reference to the fires of the tribulation? I'll let that sit with you. But it is entirely possible, I would say, likely that some will go into and through the tribulation so as to be saved. For some, it may be the only way for God to finally get their attention. And they'll lose their heads for it. And they'll suffer greatly in that short period of time for it. But some will have to go into that time to recognize Jesus truly is the Lord. Verse 19, the one with the eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. Now that sounds like a good union town. I know your work ethic. I see it in you. I know how hard you are working. And so Jesus brings this confidence-boosting commendation. This, This is a church that's working it, man. This church knows how to love and serve with faith and perseverance. This church knows how to build hospitals and orphanages and homeless shelters and missions. I know how hard you're working, Jesus says. This is the church of the get or done. And they figure by their many works they are stacking up grace points in heaven. Oh, you remember the people said to Jesus, well, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe Him whom He has sent. Galatians 5.7 Paul, calling out the legalism of the churches in Galatia, says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Which is ironic because they thought they were obeying because they were keeping all the law focused on the law, being obedient, law-abiding citizens. And he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Galatians, of course, is the letter about grace. But then Paul says this, Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just as the church in Galatia began by the Spirit, but thought that they could be perfected by the flesh, so Thyatira is a church that's really into their deeds. Working hard. 
historically and yes, prophetically. And so Jesus recognizes this kindly, wonderfully, right up front. I recognize your deeds. I see it. But now Jesus brings a concerted criticism, verse 20. But I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and they eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. That woman Jezebel. Jezebel. Who is this this Jezebel? Well, it's probably not her actual name. This Jezebel... This woman calls herself a prophetess, so note that she's self-declared. Be careful when someone comes along claiming to be something with no verification, with no one else you know, standing alongside, with no accountability. She's the prophetess Jezebel. This woman was Thyatira's leading lady. Some have even suggested the pastor's wife. You hear that, sweetheart? Some suggested Hey, my wife is no Jezebel. But this leading lady was literally leading people into and and supporting immorality and idolatry. Now, put this into perspective. They're in Thyatira, where it would be really hard not to engage as a Christian in some form of immorality or idolatry. What do you mean by that, Rick? You're in a trade union. And the trade union says, hey, we're going to be meeting at the Temple of Diana. So that's where the next meeting's at. Do you go? You're a painter and you're hired to go work on the new temple. Do you paint? You're a sculptor and someone comes along and says, I'd like to hire you to fashion some new idols. We really like the work that you do. Do you do it? And if you were there, if I was there in Thyatira, we might rationalize the work. We might say, well, i got to live, right? Tertullian talked about this. In fact, Tertullian raised the issue. He said, there are those out there engaging in idolatry, saying, i got to live. And Tertullian's response, around 200, was, viver ergo habis. Which is, must you live? Remember, Tertullian said the blood of martyrs is seed. i got to live. Must you live? Really? Christians of 2018, must we do some of the things we do? Well, it's, it's in the culture, Rick. It's on my screen. It's what the boss asked me to do. I'm just shaving a little off of the truth. I'm just compromising a little bit, and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so this Jezebel, she's saying, oh yeah, no, go paint. Go sculpt. Go meet. And while you're there, if you eat the food sacrificed to idols, not a big deal. If if while you're there, you know, they ask you to do a little idolatrous worship, you know, I mean, it's for the job, right? Not a problem. You just go ahead. Jezebel. Jesus names this woman after the most nefarious, notorious, noxious female in the Bible. Jezebel. Jezebel in her day killed hundreds of the prophets of God. She was murderous. The reason why she was killing God's prophets is she wanted to bring in her own. Prophets of Baal. Prophets of the Asherah. In the days of Elijah, and they were not singing the song then the way we sing it now. In the days of Elijah, 
hundreds of prophets were being killed by the orders of Jezebel. Obadiah, the prophet, hid a hundred prophets in fifties in a couple of different caves just to keep them away from her. 1 Kings chapter 18 talks about that. And Jezebel is the same who hunted down Elijah. Which I've always thought a fascinating story because here's Elijah who who oversees the slaughter of 400 prophets of Baal. Elijah who prays down fire from heaven. Elijah the mighty prophet. But when Jezebel says, I'm gunning for you, he runs. Like a frightened rabbit. She chases him down. Man, what was her problem? Jezebel was daughter, historically, of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians and high priest of Ashtaroth. Daughter of the high priest of Ashtaroth marries a complete buffoon, probably the most wicked or among the most wicked of the kings of Israel and a foolish man, King Ahab, And Ahab and Jezebel were married together, and she again was daughter of the high priest of Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth, my friends, the goddess of sensuality and fertility, and another name for the age-old pagan goddess we talked about last week, Semiramis. You can track it down. The feminine divine tracks all the way back to Semiramis and we see several iterations, several versions of this in all of the pagan goddesses who show up over time. Jezebel was into this. Ashtaroth worship, by the way, was all about sacrifices and orgies. A new show on Netflix, Parents Alert. Block it. Teenage uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Have you heard about it? There was the old Sabrina the Teenage Witch, was, which was kind of a show somewhat like Bewitched way back before it, you know, seemingly harmless, and a lot of people watched that as a cute show, funny, little, you know, little campy. This new Sabrina the Teenage Witch, I, I shared with our staff earlier today, I, I got a, uh, an email from Netflix saying, hey, this is, this is showing. Black background, red writing, talking about inviting you to the dark baptism of Sabrina the Teenage Witch as she signs her name to the Book of the Beast. This was an advertisement for a Netflix show. And by the way, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, you may already have read this or heard, this is the first show to have, as part of one of the episodes, a teenage orgy. That's just Ashtaroth worship. People have been doing that for thousands of years. It's not a new thing. But get this, Ashtaroth, Semiramis, worshipped by, upheld by this Jezebel, shared another name. A name in the scriptures, Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 18, tells us the children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me, says the Lord, the Queen of Heaven. Hey, Jeremiah, further into his letter, he sent to call out the Jews who are still living down in Egypt, in places like Cush and Pathros. He goes to call them out because they're engaging in paganism. And when he does so, just listen to their response. This is Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 15. Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah saying, 
As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. Can you imagine? I mean, if you don't want to listen to me, fine, don't tell me. Verse 17, But rather, they say, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, and we were well off and saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything. And we have met our end by the sword and by famine. And, said the women... When we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, was it with our husbands that we made her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out drink offerings to her? The Queen of Heaven. Jezebel was a devotee of Ashtaroth, of Semiramis, of the Queen of Heaven, which raises the question, is this the feminine divine or the femme fatale? What are we talking about here? Jezebel, this this lady Jezebel, this woman that they tolerated there in Thyatira, again was married to King Ahab. King Ahab, one day, you can read the story in 1 Kings, was looking out of his window in the palace in the Jezreel Valley and he looked down and he saw a little vineyard belonging to a guy named Nabot. You might say Naboth. If you're from the south, it's in a boat. And he, he looks down and he says, Wow, I could, I could use that. I could really use that land for myself, for my own purposes. And he goes to Naboth and he says, Hey, I'd like to buy your land. And Naboth says, I, I can't sell it. This is my family inheritance. This is all we have. This was given to us. This has been passed down generations. I'll pass it down to my children. So I, I'm sorry. It's just not for sale. And Ahab goes home. He's a little bummed. Sullen. Taking things around. <laughs> Jezebel, what's, what's the matter with you? Can't have the vineyard. Made an offer, wouldn't accept it. Can move every once, won't take it. Can't have my vineyard. Jezebel's like, I got this. She prepares, note this, she prepares a feast. Invites all kinds of people and invites Nabot to come to the, fe- to the feast. And there at the feast, she has a couple of false witnesses set up ahead of time. And midway through the feast, they begin to accuse him of cursing God and the king. I'm innocent, he cries. It doesn't matter. They accuse. They say they've heard him do it. There are two of them. Remember, by the mouths of two witnesses, under Jewish law, a thing is confirmed. So you've got two witnesses, both false, but they're lying against Nabal. They take him out that very night and they stone him to death. Jezebel swoops in, buys up the land, or actually just conscripts the land for herself and hands it to (laughs) happy Ahab, who got his land. Jesus calls this woman at Thyatira Jezebel, a woman who murders for property rights, a woman who worships the Queen of Heaven. Makes you wonder, what's he going to do with her? Well, read on. You tolerate this, Jezebel. I told her, I gave her time to repent, so clearly there's been some interaction of some kind there. Verse 22, he says, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, 
and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. A bed of sickness? Literally, it's a sick couch. Remember the pallet that the, the lame man was brought in, brought before Jesus on before he was healed? It's that kind of thing. It's like a, a, a gurney or a sick couch for carrying somebody. And Jesus says, I'm going to throw her on one of those. It's interesting, also, sick couch, it can also be a couch, it can be a bed. It kind of makes you wonder, is he talking about STDs? I'm going to make her sick in bed. The phrase, great tribulation, I'm going to throw her and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. And the phrase is megaline flipson which is the exact same phrase Jesus uses in Matthew 24-21 when He says, For there will then be a great tribulation. And so again, this is the first time now in the letters to the churches where Jesus says, This church is risking the tribulation. Which is that seven year period of time where the wrath of God is poured out on mankind at the end of the age. hasn't happened yet. It's coming. Which means Thyatira will be around. He goes on and he says, I will note this. This is brutal. I will kill her children. Jesus said that. I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Children, listen, it refers to the offspring of this false teaching. Children may be Churches who follow after the pattern of this Jezebel woman. Children may be believers, but not believers in Jesus, more believers in the idolatry that she's preaching. I'm going to take them all out, Jesus says. Why? Because they're going to spread heresy like leaven. But note this, He says, I will kill her children with pestilence. If you're reading the King James, you see a different word there, and it's the correct word. In the Greek, it's phonotos, death. I will kill her children with death. Now, he's not saying, I'm going to kill them dead. What he's saying here is, I will kill her children with death. Commentarian John Trapp put it this way. He said, all men die, but not all are killed with death. It is a woeful thing to be killed with death. What do you mean? The second death. To be killed with death is to die, not just the physical death, but to die the spiritual death. I will kill you all the way to the second death is what he's saying here. This is the compassionate, loving Christ. But what do you do to a dog with rabies? I saw Old Yeller. I messed up my kids showing them Old Yeller. You put it out of its misery. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tolerate this. And note how he says this. He said, I'm going to give to each one of you, end of verse 23, according to your deeds. Well, of course, they're a hard-working church. You want to be judged by deeds, he's saying? I'll judge you by deeds. We see this in Revelation 20. We'll get there eventually, maybe someday. I don't know. Jesus may come first. But I'm going to, I'm going to judge you. You want to be judged by your deeds? You can be. There are books. We'll open up the books. We'll see what you did. We'll look at everything you did, good and bad, and we'll make judgment based on that. Is that what you want? Not what I want. You know what I want to be judged by? Whether or not my name is in the Lamb's book of life. That's it. 
If my name is in that book, all judgment is over. How do you get your name in the book? Believe in Him whom He has sent. Faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Jesus. Your name in the Lamb's book of life. And yes, you will be saved. But the second death is for those who say, I want to be judged on my deeds. And you're going to have your name written all over the book of deeds. Like a union card. But if it's not in the book of life, don't matter a bit. And so for these, Jesus warns, without repentance, there will be tribulation. We have reached that stage in the church age where all indications are an entire church system will find representation on earth in the tribulation. And that's pretty stunning. This is the unrepentant religious system of Thyatira. And so Jesus goes on to give a clear correction in verse 24. He says, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. That's beautiful. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just asking you to remain faithful to me. Just keep trusting me. Don't hold to this teaching of this, of this Jezebel who kills for her own gain. This Jezebel who worships idols and immorality and specifically the feminine divine. Don't follow those teachings. I don't have anything else I'm going to even ask you to do. Just trust me. And it's all going to be okay. Those who have not known the deep things of Satan. Here's the clear correction. Deep things is the word bathos. Bathos means the secret things, the mysterious things. The deep things of Satan. These are indicative of the esoteric enigmas of the Babylonian mystery religion that we've talked about. It's very secretive. Very behind closed doors. It's very veiled. It's a mystery. The pagan priests of Babylonian paganism, they would say, we alone know the deep things. We understand the dark mysteries. We will tell you, you don't need to study for yourselves. Meanwhile, all the lay people of Babylonian mystery religion would be kept in the dark, while the priest interpreter kept the bathos, the secret things, the deep things. The priest interpreter, by the way, had a very specific and special name, which I'll tell you in just a minute. But wait a minute. He says the deep things of Satan, the mysteries, the esoterics, if you will, of Satan, aren't there deep things of God? I mean, does deep things mean bad things? No, they're bad things if they're the deep things of Satan. But you know what? There are deep things of God. I love the deep things of God. But there's a big difference between the deep things of God and the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan are a counterfeit. They're a lie. They're mysterious. They're intriguing. The deep things of God are something completely different. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen nor ear has heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Listen. For to us God revealed. Revealed. 
through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. What's the difference between the depths, the deep things of God, and the deep things of Satan? The deep things of God are revelation, unveiled, in the light, free for all to consume and learn and understand and know God is not hiding anything. I don't call you slaves because slaves don't know what their masters are doing, Jesus says. I call you my friends. For I have made known to you everything that I have been given from my Father. So the deep things of God are the revealed things. The revelation, as it were, of Jesus Christ. The apocalypsis, the unveiling. Right? Jesus revealed. Oh, I love this. John 1.18 tells us no one has seen God at any time. That's mysterious. But the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He's explained Him. And in the Greek, he even uses the word exegeomai in John 1.18. He's explained him. It's where we get our word exegesis, which is a word we use in Bible study for exegeting a passage. Ringing out every possible bit of information out of the passage. Understanding and clarity and wisdom and knowledge. Those are the deep things of God. He says, I've got a full table for you and I just want you to come feast. Come enjoy. Come and learn and know me. The deep things of Satan... Can't talk about those. We'll keep them for you. You're not in a position to understand and know these things. Hey, great is the mystery of godliness. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So, In all this, and there are a bunch of clues and pieces to this puzzle, in all of this, what is Jesus really getting at with Thyatira? Who's he talking to? And why such a long letter to such a podunk town? You know, by comparison with the others. Prophetically speaking, the letter to Thyatira overlays the church, again, of 606 to roughly the early 1500s, and yet still in operation today, we're talking about Roman Catholicism. This is a letter speaking to the Catholic Church. Now, to anyone who comes from a Catholic background or has Catholic sensitivities or is still holding to some Catholic theology, please hear this. Jesus loves all seven seasons of the Church. Where I might look at someone in Catholicism and disagree vehemently over certain areas, and you're going to see a few in just a second, (laughs) Jesus still loves those who have called out His name, even if they've got it completely wrong. How do you know that? Because I know He loves Sardis. And we're going to deal with that next week. And that is the church of the Reformation and the denominational church that Jesus calls dead. So if you're offended tonight, just wait till next week. And you know something else, just as far as Catholicism is concerned, Protestants and Evangelicals could learn a thing or two about love, service, perseverance and faith from Catholics. These people know how to put their faith to work. And we could do, I think, better than we've done. But when idolatry is introduced into the church that Jesus built, when doctrine is revised, doctrine is replaced, where Jesus is diminished and humanity rises up in power, it fires his eyes and it burnishes his feet. So I want to give you tonight five things very quickly. I know the hour's already late. 
but you're doing really well. Five things to note about Roman Catholicism and why it's an issue for Jesus. Why he would take the time to call out Thyatira. Again, this podunk little town, but there were so many things about Thyatira that speaks to the issue that he wants to address. And he uses them all. The seven churches are like seven parables, my friends. Yes, historical, but also prophetical in the way that Jesus teaches. So, number one, and if you're a note-taker, jot these down. Number one is what I would call the Thyatira of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. The Catholic belief, the the concept... uh, Well, first of all, you understand Catholicism is about two primary things more than anything else in all of Catholicism and Catholic doctrine. Two primary things, and the first is the Mass. The Catholic Mass. If you have Catholic friends, if you've been Catholic, you've heard the word Mass. You know that we even talked about the Christ Mass, the, the sent Christ or Christ sent. The Mass... The taking of the Eucharist. Communion. It all revolves around the Mass. And the Mass has to do with this word transubstantiation. What's interesting is Thyatira, the word, the name of the city Thyatira, literally translates in the Greek continual sacrifice or continual feast. That describes the Mass. It is the feast of continual sacrifice. That is, every time you take the Eucharist in the Mass, Jesus is dying again. It's a new sacrifice. Every time you take it, it's again and again and again. Now, we take it here on Sundays and Wednesdays. We don't do it because we're nailing Jesus back to the cross again. We don't do it because we're saying he's dying all over again. No, we are proclaiming his death past tense until he comes future tense. That's the biblical perspective. But in Catholicism, transubstantiation, the continual sacrifice. My friends, listen. A continual sacrifice is a pagan concept. It's ongoing, continual, incessant sacrifice to appease the gods. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, our high priest does not need daily, like those high priests, even of Judaism, to offer up sacrifices. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did, Jesus did, once and for all when he offered up himself to Telestai. It is finished. The one sacrifice, one point in history, and done for all time, not the continual sacrifice of Thyatira. And in Roman Catholicism, everything, again, revolves around this. Revolves around the Mass, the continual feast or sacrifice. The bread and the wine in the doctrine of transubstantiation actually become the body and blood of Christ. To the point that in many Catholic churches the people can't even drink the wine or the juice anymore. The priest has to do it for them because you can't spill Jesus' blood. What if someone bumps your elbow and Jesus' blood gets on the chairs? You can't. That's divine. You can't drop the cracker. What if you're walking up the aisle and there's some, there's some of Jesus on the floor? You can't do that. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but, but seriously, that's, that's the perspective of transubstantiation, that the wafer itself is worshipped. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. Anything that is representative that I would worship instead of worshiping God is no different than the golden calf. 
Well, I disagree with you, Pastor. Okay, stick around, because you're going to disagree with a whole lot more than that. The body of Christ. This is the body of Christ, it's believed. And so, the body in the wafer is worshipped. The blood is worshipped. By the way, alcoholism is huge among priests. Because they got to drink all the wine. You get back after, you know, service is over, everyone's left, and you're pouring it back into the bottles like, oh, tasted pretty good this morning. What did Jesus say again about His sacrifice? That it is finished. Romans 6.10 tells us the death that He died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Second thing. So that's the Thyatira of transubstantiation. Secondly, the increase of inquisition. The increase of, or you could say by inquisition, from 600 to 1500 A.D., the Catholic Church amassed vast amounts of wealth. Stored it up, bought it out, land holdings, artwork. Remember Jezebel? In the story of Nabot, the story is perfect. Because what did she do? By false witness, inquisition if you will, she had Nabot killed and took his land. And the Catholic Church did that. Down across the centuries. They even had what historically are referred to as corpse trials. That is, if someone was killed, martyred if you will, but killed because they were in opposition to the Catholic Church, they would then hold a trial for the corpse and go take his land from his family. In the Inquisitions. Inquisition for acquisition. By the way, I'm just scraping the surface tonight on some of these things, and if you really want to study it out and look at the history of all these things and more than I have time to even discuss, pick up the book, A Woman Rides the Beast. Provocative title. By Dave Hunt. A Woman Rides the Beast by Dave Hunt. And he details all of this, and it's verifiable. Number three. So the Inquisitions took place... Transubstantiation. Number three, I'd call just Peter of the Papacy. Peter of the Papacy. According to Catholic doctrine, who was the first Pope? Peter. Peter. You know what? They might be right. What do you mean? Well, the first official Pope going back in time was Boniface III, and that was in 607 AD. So 600 years into the church. Same century that Muhammad rose and Islam came up, but that's beside the point. Boniface was the first official pope. The Catholics would say, no, 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 we have, we have the unbroken line of the papacy that goes all the way back to Peter. Well, the problem is that the first 65 popes leading up to that point, according to the Catholic list, lack any kind of verification. And Catholic uh, authorities know this. In fact, according to the New Catholic Encyclopedia... It must, quote, it must frankly be admitted that biases or deficiencies make it impossible to determine whether the claimants were popes or anti-popes. Anti-pope? Constantine. Remember Constantine, our buddy? In the 300s, started to ease the pressure from the church and bring in paganism and Christianity to be uh, interesting bedfellows. Constantine, who was not on the papal list, was the first to refer to himself as Vicarious Christi, or the Vicar of Christ. Again, if you know Catholicism, you know this is a title that is used for the Pope even today. The Vicar of Christ, as in a representative of Christ, or more accurately, Vicarious Christi would be another Christ. 
You have Christ, Jesus. This would be another Christ. The name is still used for popes today. Reading an article this afternoon, Pope John Paul was called, get this, the sweet Christ on earth. Pope John Paul was called that. Well, I thought there was only one Christ Jesus. But he was called that. The name used for popes today, Vicar of Christ, correctly translated from Latin, Vicarius Christi, into Greek. You know what the word is in the Greek? Antichristos. Antichrist. Which simply means, again, another Christ. There are three ancient papal names that draw directly out of paganism, my friends. Vicar, Vicar of Christ, Bishop of Bishops, and Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus, the first one to take the title of Pontifex Maximus on himself, and again, that's right out of pagan Babylonian culture. The Pontifex Maximus. First one to use that title for himself was Damasus, the Bishop of Rome, in 366. In the Babylonian mystery religion, the one who held the secret, the bathos, remember what we were talking about? He was called Pontifex Maximus. The name means the go-between. The mediator, if you will. But there was another word that was used for Pontifex Maximus in Babylonian paganism, the Chaldean word, ancient Chaldean word for this go-between, and it was spelled P-E-T-R, the Peter. So I guess you could say Peter was the first pope. The pope comes along and was declared infallible. I'm sure you've heard that the pope is infallible. A good Catholic would say, in matters of doctrine. Okay, I'll give you that one, just for a moment. But the Pope was first declared to be infallible in 1870. Not in AD 70, in 1870. But the history of the papacy is filled with dark fallibilities that are undeniable. You know that transubstantiation was declared as a doctrine in 1215 A.D. You don't have to jot all this down. I'm just kind of pouring out to to get the picture here of the church that Jesus is concerned for at Thyatira. Transubstantiation was declared doctrine in 1215 by Innocent III, Pope Innocent III. You know what he was known as? The bloodiest of all popes. Because of his murderous appetite. Catholic historian, former Jesuit Peter DeRosa, said, quote, Popes had mistresses of 15 years of age, were guilty of incest and sexual perversions of every sort, had innumerable children, were murdered in the very act of adultery by jealous husbands who found them in bed with their wives. In the old Catholic phrase, why be holier than the Pope? You know, it's interesting, the Catholic Church today is very divided over all the sexual abuse and misconduct scandals, which have continued over the years. And what's really come out now at this time, even this week, the division in the Catholic Church is over the fact that it's all been so covered up. People are very upset about the cover-ups from the higher-ups in the Catholic Church just taking a bishop who was sexually molesting a child and just moving him to another diocese. So that, you know, we'll just cover the tracks. And so right now, this week, 
Literally, uh, there's a three-day conference in Baltimore, Maryland, for 196 bishops of the United States of America. All the American bishops gathering together, and they were very excited because they were going to vote on two specific issues, two strategies to deal with sexual abuse misconduct among you know leaders in the church. One of those strategies was actually to develop a lay council of non-priests, you know, just your average church people. And the lay council would then do all the, uh, you know, investigations and looking into the scandals and everything and, and would make rulings. And, and most of the American bishops are for that. They think it's a great idea. Let's, let's do this. They were real excited. They all show up in Baltimore. And a directive came down from Pope Francis just a couple of days ago saying, no vote. We're not voting on that right now. He's putting it off. Now, some are saying, well, because he's going to take the lead in all of this. Others are saying it's a stalling tactic. But the church is divided over this. And I look at Francis today and I think infallible. Catholics are questioning his, his you know, understanding of and use of the truth. Catholics are not certain about this man. And again, if you look back over the infallibility, Rick, but it's Catholic doctrine. That the Pope is infallible in matter of doctrine. Okay, why would you want to accept doctrine from someone like Innocent III who was killing people? Would you come and listen to me preach if you knew that I was a blatant adulterer? Would you come listen to me teach if you knew I was fresh out of prison for having murdered half a dozen people? Because I lost my temper. But I got it under control now. Would you want to listen to and sit under that kind of teaching? Would you accept that integrity of the teaching? See, that's the problem. Jesus said in John 10.25, The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. See, I can trust Jesus. I can look at all that He said and believe Him for it because I look at all that He did and it verifies what He said. That's integrity. But if you have a a Pope out there and he's living one way but teaching another, why would I accept that as doctrinal truth? As infallible? Here are some of the teachings. Let me throw some of these out real quickly. In 786 AD, the worship of images and relics was added into the overall worship of the Catholic Church. Images and relics. In 850, the use of holy water. These are not things, by the way, that you will find in Scripture, except that God will, with many of these things, say, don't do it. You shall not worship any graven image. Go all the way back to Ten Commandments for that one. In 995, they began the canonization of dead saints, which is an elevation of certain people as saints over the laity who are not saints. Brothers and sisters, I can look you all in the face tonight and say, if you believe in Jesus, you're a saint. Saint Rick. I like it. Do we have anyone named Bernard at this church? I would love to know a Saint Bernard. That would be great. (laughs) 1079 began the celibacy of the priesthood. 1090... The rosary, praying the rosary, the prayer beads. 1184 came the Inquisition. 1190, the sale of indulgences. Now this one I kind of like. What you can do with an indulgence, you can purchase an indulgence ahead of time to sin. I'm going to go ahead and buy out the punishment. I'll give a certain amount of money and I will be you know, freed of the sin that I'm going to commit this weekend. 
or, or you can buy indulgences for people who have died and they're in purgatory to get them out sooner. Or maybe to buy down your time in purgatory. If you're a real evil guy but you've made a lot of money, man, just buy out the time. Indulgences. In 1229, not surprisingly, the Bible was forbidden to the laity. In 1439, the concept of purgatory was introduced. And in 1549, church tradition was granted equal authority with the Bible. So what we've done for all these years, if it's not in the Bible, it is equally authoritative as the Bible. And this is all just history. Again, we're we're scratching the surface, but it's, it's pagan history, and all these things, all of these things have their roots in Mystery Babylon. You can find them in pagan religion long before Catholicism took root. Now you might say, wouldn't people realize this by studying their Bibles? Number four, out of five things, we're almost done. Bible study versus the bathos. The deep things, the secret things. Again, in 1120, uh, 1125, or 1229, sorry, 1229, the Bible was forbidden to the laity. A hundred years before that, in 1127 AD, there was a Bible study movement in the church. Led by a man named Peter Waldo. The first, where's Waldo? Because he had to move around a lot. Because he was in trouble with the church. They didn't want him teaching the Bible. But he kept teaching. And this movement exploded in the church. People all over the place were going, yes, we we can read, we can understand this. We need to read the Bible. And they were called Waldensians. And the Catholic Church in that hundred year period ultimately killed 2.5 million Waldensians for showing up for home Bible study. And the church today has trouble getting people to sign up for a small group. Interesting. By 1229, the Bible was changed to the pulpit, completely forbidden to the common people, the lay people. Scores of others over the years, and all of this again is history, were martyred by the Roman church. John Wycliffe, John Huss, Bishops Ridley and Latimer, and I only name them because they should be named and remembered. Burned at the stake. You know what's fascinating to me? Now we see the church doing the exact thing to its own that Rome did to the church in the first 300 years. It's history. It's amazing, but it's history. And this season in the church and in the world has a name for it. You know what it's called? The Dark Ages. Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Here we go with the last thing. Turn over to Revelation 17, verse 3. Now I know we're going to get there and we'll study it far more in depth than we can tonight, but I just have to point this out. Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. John says, He carried me away 
in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Note that, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads with ten horns. What does that mean? Wait for it, we'll get there. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. Oh, purple, Thyatira. See the connection there. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. The word is pornea, sexual immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And you read that, and without further study or explanation, yeah, it makes you wonder greatly. By the way, a little heads up to what's coming. When we get to chapter 16 or 17, we'll talk about this. The symbol for Europe is a woman riding a beast. Europa is her name. Anyway, why a woman? Thyatira, Jezebel. Why a woman? Walter Martin in the book Kingdom of the Occult, which I just got today on my Kindle and just started reading. But he quotes pagan leaders Prudence Jones and Nigel Pinnock in their book called A History of Pagan Europe. So this is a book written by two pagans and they define three primary elements of paganism. Here they are. It's polytheistic. Okay, so more than one God. Nature is divine and therefore to be worshipped. Earth worship. Okay? Nature is not fallen. The Bible teaches that creation is fallen. Do you know that? The creation is groaning with, with the pangs of expectation of the revelation of the children of God, Romans chapter 8 tells us. This is not a pure and perfect and worshipping world. This is not a world we should worship. But in paganism, of course you do. And number three, for it to be pagan, it must include goddess worship. The feminine divine. In addition to, or as opposed to, the masculine divine, remember Jesus' one use of the phrase, of the name, the Son of God, in this letter. As though Jesus were going head to head with this false prophetess, this Jezebel, and these lies. And the final issue here of Thyatira and the Catholic Church that has to be addressed is what I would simply call number five, Queen Mary. Queen Mary. I'm not talking about Queen Mary of history. I'm talking about Mary of the Catholic Church. Remember, the only queen of heaven mentioned in the Bible is Ashtaroth, hearkening back to Semiramis. That's the only queen of heaven you can pull out of the scriptures. And yet, Time Magazine wrote, according to all modern popes, Mary is the queen of heaven. The most authoritative book about her in Catholicism is, by the way, it's not the Bible. The most authoritative book about her in Catholicism is written by Cardinal St. Alphonsus de Liguri, and it's a book simply titled Virgin Mary. And in his book, Virgin Mary, he quotes many saints, and here are a few of the quotes, sinners receive pardon by Mary alone. 
he falls and is lost who has no recourse to Mary. Mary is called the gate of heaven because no one can enter that blessed kingdom without passing through her. And who would receive any grace were it not for thee, O Mary, mother of God? I seem to recall Jesus saying, John 10.9, I am the door. I'm the gate. I'm the way. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and will find pasture. Jesus said, John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the Virgin Mary, Queen Mary of Catholicism, my friends, that's not Mary of the Bible. It's not the same Mary. In the same way that the Jesus of Mormonism is not the same Jesus of the Bible. The Mary of Catholicism is not the Mary of the Bible. In her last recorded words, many of you know, John chapter 2, verse 5, last thing we have that Mary says in the Scriptures at all is, whatever He says to you, do it. Speaking of Jesus. You know what happens with Mary after that in the Gospels? She falls silent. We never get another word from her. She's not even at the Last Supper. Not at the cross. Not after the resurrection. Not among the 150. We know she's with the 150 in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2. Praying, waiting for the Spirit. But we don't hear what she prays or anything that she says. Not a word, complete silence. And my friends, understand it is not Mary who is coming. It's not Queen Mary who's coming, and it's not Biblical Mary who's coming. It's Jesus. Verse 25 of Revelation chapter 2 says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And that is the first time in the seven letters that Jesus refers explicitly to His return. Hold fast until then. Well, the rest of this we'll save for Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for the Bridge Fellowship tonight that we would be a church pure and simple in love with Jesus. That our hearts would not get convoluted by all kinds of different things. Drawn away by mysteries. Father, mysteries are fun. That doesn't make them good. Dark things are alluring and intriguing. But God, that's, that's where Satan works. We know this. Oh Lord, keep us from the deep things of Satan and reveal to us constantly the deep things of God. Bring us out of darkness and into the light of Your presence. Always Your presence, Lord. And may we, Lord... May we have the same depth of compassion for all the church that we see in You. And may it begin right here in this fellowship. Help us to love each other the way You first loved us. We thank You for Your Word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you haven't given your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, He's the only one. There is no other way. There is no other name given 
on earth or in heaven above by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. And if you've accepted and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, praise the Lord and praise Him tonight as we sing. If you haven't, if you've never prayed, or if you're uncertain, I think I did, I don't know if I did, why be uncertain? Come and let's pray to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior tonight. And as always, if there's anything else that you need to pray about, we'll have someone at all four tables. Let's pray together. Let's worship Him as we stand and sing.